And now I invite you to take a Bible and to open it to Exodus chapter 2. I'll tell you up front, I'm going old school today. There are no PowerPoint notes for you. Uh, Spent the majority of my time in preparation just trying to uh, help set up and encourage all that uh, you've already seen happen. And so I thought, I'll just ask you to open up your Bible and you'll find the notes uh, in verses 1 through 10 right there. And so Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I just want to provide a little bit of the background for you to it. Because chapter 1 is a pretty, cool, pretty critical chapter, but we're not going to be reading it. But what it tells us is the way the book of Genesis ended was that an entire family experiencing a famine needed to find a new home. A, a famine in that day didn't mean, oh no, we're in trouble, but we can just drive 30 minutes and go to another grocery store and, and get the food that we need from another area. If the area you lived in didn't provide the food that you and your family needed, you had to go somewhere else. And so the way the book of Genesis ends is that in the land of Canaan, there was a famine. And so the people had to leave and go to Egypt. But in this crazy plan of God that we read about in the last 15 to 20 chapters of Genesis, before the family needed to go to Egypt, a specific son of a large family made it to Egypt through horrible circumstances. Horrible, awful, evil, sinful circumstances. A young man named Joseph made it to Egypt. When he made it to Egypt, he actually rose eventually to power, and he became the second in command in Egypt. And so that now when his family needed a new place to go and needed provision, they found by their amazement this brother, this son who they thought was dead, not only alive, but alive and in charge. And the person who could welcome them to this area and see to it that all of their needs were taken care of. So this is this family, these Canaanites who are now in Egypt, these Jews who are now living in Egypt, And this is how the book of Exodus opens. And one of the first things that it tells us in chapter 1 is that eventually a pharaoh, a ruler, a king came to power who didn't know Joseph. Hadn't heard about Joseph. The message didn't continue to get passed down to him about who Joseph was. And that's just sort of a a clue for us to say, "Uh uh-oh. That that doesn't seem like something good is about to follow now that there's a king who doesn't remember Joseph who this Joseph is and who his family is. The story goes that the family became actually very large, but they were strangers. They knew they weren't home. They were there for a temporary reason, but they continued to grow and expand. And eventually, the rulers and the kings looked at them and said, you know what, this group is getting so big and they're not not of us. And so if we let them become too big, we could get into trouble. If we let them become too big, we could get into trouble. And so harsh labor was brought upon them, and it became the point where as a people, they became slaves of the Egyptians. So you just can kind of try to get yourself back to that place and imagine that. And if you're a husband and wife and thinking, if we have children, our children basically will become the slaves of the Egyptians. They're taking everything we have 
and they're abusing us. They're manipulating us because they are afraid of us. And then making them slaves was no longer sufficient because the people continued to grow that it got to the point where the Pharaoh himself had finally decided that something else needed to happen and he wanted violence to happen to the children of Israel, to all the male children of Israel. He wanted them gone. Because he said, this, this slavery route is not working. They're still growing. We, we won't be able to control them at some point in time. And so the situation got so dark from the perspective of the Pharaoh that he got bloody and he got violent. And that's where we pick up chapter 2 in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son... And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of borishes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And that's where we'll conclude in Exodus for today. Under my first heading, I've got three words that begin with S, strangers, suspicion, and suffering. The people of Israel in Egypt were strangers. You could identify them, you could look at them and know they're not from these parts. And because of that, they were in the situation of desperate need that we find at the beginning of chapter 2. And it's one of the things that we have to keep in mind, that even though we believe that the whole world is affected by sin, the whole world is dealing with the consequences of the fall, those consequences are not equally distributed among us. Some people in our world are suffering from sin and from the fall in ways that other people are not. So though the the reality is universal, the way that that is distributed and the way that that is experienced is not the same throughout. And more often than not, when people are sinful and bent on sin, those who suffer the most are those who are a part of a minority group or are women or children. The consequences of the behavior 
is experienced differently depending upon the status of the individual. Does that make sense? So if a young girl and a young boy sin, and the young boy says, I'm checked out, I'm not ready for this, I don't want anything to do with this, he can check out. But the consequences of that will be borne disproportionately upon the young girl and if that young girl has a child. They will feel very much and experience very really things that another person who might be, if you will, equally culpable, or in the case of the child, the child's not culpable at all, but they're experiencing the consequences of it more, the brunt of it more, the emotions, the physical pain, and the suffering that comes more than others. So though sin is a universal reality and it's something that we all struggle with, it is not experienced by all of us the same way. And that's what's true of these people. They are strangers in this land. The Hebrews are not in charge. They have no power. And so if the Pharaoh is bent on making legislation, he can make the legislation that favors him and his people, not the foreigners, not those who are in need. And so it's possible that though all of them, in a general sense we can say, are in need of redemption, some of them are hurting others of them in very serious and profound ways. And that's what the Pharaoh can do because it's the Pharaoh who's in charge. It's his country and it's his people. And so he can make all of the systems and all of the structures favor him and those whom he likes. And so because of that, the Hebrews are on the wrong end of the stick. They are the ones who have to worry as to whether or not they have a future. They have to worry what kind of experience their children will grow up in. That's what they are experiencing because they are strangers. And because they're strangers, the Pharaoh is suspicious of them, and eventually the suspicion grows to actual persecution. Eventually the suspicion turns to persecution. And what we have at the beginning of our chapter is that in spite of all of that, there's just this resilience on the part of the people of God to say, you are not going to take life from us. You are not going to change the way we live. And you're not going to change what we value. And so this young Levite man who sees this woman who he wants to marry says, I'm not going to look at it and say, well, look, the circumstances are so bad, the the financial prospects are so minimal, whatever excuse you could come up with, and so I'm just not going to, it's not even worth pursuing a relationship with somebody else. No, that's, that's not his action, that's not his behavior. He's convinced and convicted that he should still pursue a relationship with somebody that he loves, that they should get together, and they have a son. And because he was a son and not a daughter, the very real threat of punishment from the Egyptians grew. And so what we find is that this now young couple took care of their child for as long as they could in a way that they could hide him and that they could not be found out. So as long as they could keep him from sort of moving on his own and running into different places, that they knew exactly where he was, that they could quiet him so that others would not hear, there's a baby here. And it was about three months that they were able to do that. But verse 3 tells us 
that when the mother could hide him no longer, when she could hide him no longer, she had to take very drastic actions. Desperate times now call for desperate measures. If she holds on to him and says, I I just can't let him go, I have to hold on to him, then she knows who she is, what society she's living in, and what will likely be the outcome for her son if she tries to hold on to him. So it says that she took and made a basket. She put him in the basket, and she placed the basket in the river. One of the dangers for those of us who are familiar with the way the Bible unfolds is that we have to try as we can to not remember how it ends. Because it's easy when we know how it ends to think they knew how it was going to end. Well, she knew that somebody would come and, and pick up this baby. No, she doesn't. There's nothing in the text that tells us that they know what is going to happen. They don't know the future like you and I don't know the future. What they know is what will happen if they do nothing. They know what will happen if they try to hold on to him. And so knowing that, not knowing what would happen if they go this route, they, in desperation, release their child, praying and hoping that someone will take him that someone else who has not borne him will love him, will accept the responsibility to provide for and protect him. And then isn't it amazing that we find that as now this young child is put into this basket, finally some people approach. It's not just anyone who approaches. It's not just some Egyptian woman, but it is the Pharaoh's daughter herself the daughter of the one who made the decree that this very child not be allowed to live is the one who comes now by the banks of the river and sees the need that exists. The Bible does not give us useless details and so when we see descriptions given, we want to pay attention to them. It says in verse 6, when she opened it and she saw the child, And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So she knows right away whose child this is. Not specifically who the mom and dad are, but she knows this is not an Egyptian child. She knows that this is one of the Hebrews' children. She knows what her father has decreed. And when we're looking into the story to say what was it that drew out of her this willingness to pick him up and to bring her as his own, all it says is that when she unwrapped him and when she saw him, she saw him crying. And so she took pity on him. What she needed to see in order for it to be drawn out of her heart, compassion to be drawn out of her, was how desperate this situation was. That when she looked at this young child and saw this child crying, in her mind, she understood also, if I don't do something, if I don't care for him, if I don't accept responsibility for him, 
He cannot take care of himself. He cannot stop his own crying except by pure exhaustion. But everything he wants, somebody else has to give. Now, she could have been compassionate and rescued him for a moment in time and just said, let's, let's bring him in until we can find some other situation. Because for her, it had to have been a huge risk. She is now participating in defying the Pharaoh's orders. And she lives in Pharaoh's house. This is not in any way an easy proposition for her to consider this. This puts, not only is the child at risk now, but this puts her at risk as someone who is willing to go against the very decrees of her own father, who is the ruler of this land. But she doesn't have a momentary compassion. She chooses to bring him into her home. And it says in verse 10, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. And so she chose to make him who was not her son, her son. And not just for the moment, but now permanently. This is as after now he's grown up and he's not as needy or maybe as dependent as he would have been when she first met him. But in her heart, she was stirred towards him. And she said, this is my son. And this is his name. It's possible if you continue reading in Exodus, you, you just start to read about even more spectacular things that happen when this Moses now comes back to the Pharaoh and starts challenging him. And then a variety of events take place that are all public and everybody's aware of them. And the ramifications of them are huge that we almost lose sight of this first miracle that took place. We almost forget about it by the time we're at the end. But when we are willing to go backwards and say, where did this story begin? Okay, I'm seeing Moses now and I'm seeing these dramatic miracles happening now, but what's the background story? The background story is a miracle inside the heart of a woman to take as her own a young child that is not her own. That she would be willing at all the risk that that would have taken to her own status in her own home, but seeing this need that she could meet to embrace him and to bring him into her family and to accept forever the responsibility to provide for and to protect this young child. It's a miracle. It's amazing how God works and how subversive it is that he would have this happen. This would have been amazing had any woman in Egypt done this. But that our God is so capable to work inside of all of the events that are taking place and to work in spite of all of the brokenness that exists in our world that he can see to it that it happens in the very home of the Pharaoh himself. That the very person who is so bent on doing wrong and so bent on doing wickedness is this very same person who is now providing for, feeding, nourishing, and educating one of the children that his heart was so set against. And this is the beginning of the story 
of the nation of Israel, before they enter the promised land, before they have their own King David, what they have is this woman who also, by, any, by anything that we could possibly know, does not have any specific faith in the God of the Bible. Right? She's an Egyptian woman living in Pharaoh's house. She's his daughter. So we also don't see this drawn out of her because of some specific commitment or awareness that she has of who the God of these Hebrew people are. We learn from later in his life that he knows that he was a Hebrew and so she was willing for him to keep a part of his own story alive so that he would know who he was. But we, we don't know anything about her except in this moment, her willingness to have compassion, to see a need, and to be willing to meet it. And this theme of adoption becomes a central theme in understanding how it is that God redeems us from our predicaments, from our situations, how it is that he meets our needs. He doesn't just give us things to meet them. He commits himself to a relationship with us and in that relationship accepts all of the responsibility for our provision and for our protection. It's so much the theme that if you look at the back of your handout, one of the most popular theologians in our day and age, his name is J.I. Packer. If you've never read the book Knowing God, I, I couldn't recommend a book on theology more highly to you than Knowing God, but he says this, were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, if somebody challenged me and I had to sum up everything the New Testament says in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. Now, the last word needs to be unpacked as much as the first, but we don't have that much time. But that adoption is at the heart of what it is that God has been doing and is doing in redeeming us. To show you one passage in the New Testament where he's getting this from, I'll invite you as we're closing to turn to Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans in the New Testament written by Paul Chapter 8, if you're using one of these Bibles, you'll find it on page 944. And you'll see how it is that God treats us. How it is that he, in seeing our crying, our need, our desperation, commits himself to us in a relationship and adopts us into his family. We're going to start with verse 12 of chapter 8 in Romans, page 944. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so there we have the description that what God has done for us to redeem us is to make us his own children and that by that happening, everything else flows with it. By becoming a son or a daughter of the king, we then get to benefit in and enjoy all that the king has to offer. That's what he is doing when he is choosing to make us his children, to share with us forever all that he has in the form of provision and protection so that we can cry out to him, it says in verse 15, with all the endearment of young children to their father, we can refer to him as Abba, Father. We can cry out to him because of a relationship that he has made possible with him in bringing us into his family. This is the heart of God's plan. It is not God's desire to simply give us gifts, to simply give us things that we need so that he can just sort of pacify us and not have to deal with us anymore. It is the desire of our Heavenly Father to invite us into a relationship with him, to become a part of his family, and in being a part of that family, to enjoy everything that he has to offer. To enjoy everything that he has to offer. Adoption, more often than not, in the New Testament, would have actually been the adoption of adult children into a family that somebody was looking for someone to whom they could leave their inheritance. They were looking for an heir that would be willing to take and to enjoy and to receive all that this person had to offer. That would have been more often than not how we would have seen adoption in the New Testament. And it's still true in our day and age that when, we, when adoption happens for adult children, There has to be simply the willingness to accept it. That's it. They don't have to come with any provision. They don't have to come with anything to offer. All they have to come with is the willingness to receive and to accept and to say, that is somebody with whom and to whom I am willing to be a part of the family. And that is a challenge for each and every one of us to understand God in such a way that he is so loving, that he is so willing to bring us in. And he asks us not to bring our good works, not to bring all of our efforts, not to bring anything we can do to try to impress him, but to simply bring to him our yes and our amen, our willingness to let him assume the responsibility for our needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a great God. And we celebrate today the way in which you love us. That you love us enough to bring us in, to clean us up, 
and that you are moved to love us, not because of anything good in us, but just because we cry, just because we need you. Father, we pray that you would in stir within our own hearts a greater appreciation, a greater depth of gratitude, a greater humility toward you for how good and how awesome you are. And in that, Father, we pray that you would then show us very clearly, as we've already been challenged today, very specific ways that we can represent you and your love to others in our own community, throughout this world, with the time and the resources that we have. Father, we we give your spirit all the freedom to stir in us according to your will and purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.